Hi, everyone, and welcome back to this Sunday School series on the Gospel of Mark. My name is Ryan Bonfilio, and I serve as the Scholar-in-Residence at the First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta, and I'll be your instructor for this lesson in this series on the Gospel of Mark. This is Session 6, and in it we'll be talking about Mark 6.30 through 8.10. To borrow an old phrase from that famous New York Yankees player, Yogi Berra, When we think about this text, it seems like it's deja vu all over again. For in this short little segment of the Gospel of Mark, we find a lot of repeated stories. First, there's the miraculous feeding of the multitude. We encounter this story both in Mark 6, 30 through 44, where 5,000 men are fed, and then again in 8, 1 through 9, where 4,000 are fed. Now, of course, it's very possible that Jesus performed a similar type of miracle twice, and Mark is simply recording that story twice. But it's also mar- possible that Mark has taken this tradition, this, this oral account of Jesus' miraculous feeding of the multitude, and has told it two separate times. In either case, we also have in this small segment of scripture that we'll cover in this lesson, a second instance in where Jesus has calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee. We find it here in Mark 6, 45 to 52, but earlier in Mark 4, 35 to 41, we've encountered a similar series, a similar miracle. And one of the things that we'll ask as we encounter these familiar stories is what are they really about? What are they meant to teach us about Jesus and discipleship? And in order to get at these questions, we're going to take a closer look at the language and I think begin to reveal some new dimensions of stories that I suspect are already quite familiar to you. In addition, we're also going to take a look at two less familiar stories that bracket the material that we are looking at today. Namely, we're going to look at the death of John the Baptist, which actually brings us back earlier into Mark 6, verses 14 through 29. And then we're also going to look at Jesus's strange encounter with what is called a Syrophoenician woman, a Gentile woman, that occurs uh, later in Mark 7. Both are strange stories, and for both we'll ask, why are they included here in this part of the Gospel of Mark? So let's go ahead and begin, but before we do so, let me once again remind you that posted online are the Prezi slides or presentation slides that go along with this audio file. And I should also mention that in these audio presentations, I'm going to have the chance to cover a little bit more terrain than I cover in the typical live version of this course, which is offered on Sunday mornings at the Sunday School Hour. So even if you were there for one of the sessions in these audio presentations, I'll go back and say a little bit more about certain topics and some of the topics that we didn't have the chance to cover on those mornings, I will cover in these audio presentations. Okay, so let's begin with the death of John the Baptist, which is described in Mark 6, 14 through 29. And if you're reading through the Gospel of Mark and you get to this text, something immediately seems odd to us. Because as we know, one of Mark's distinctive qualities, one of his stylistic features, is that there's always this quick, immediate, moving action. Jesus is always on the move. The plot is always on the move. Mark, in contrast to Matthew or Luke, rarely pauses and dwells and tells a long story. But this case of the death of John the Baptist is a, is a rare exception to that rule. Mark spends a lot of time telling this story, 
16 whole verses. And, in, and that's in comparison to the Gospel of Luke, which only gives this story two very brief verses. So why does Mark dwell here? What's his point about telling this story? And why does he tell it at this particular moment? Well, first, let's reconsider the basic plot of the story of the demise of John the Baptist. We all know who John the Baptist is. His ministry was parallel to that of Jesus and really pointed to Jesus's ministry. John was active in the southern Galilee region, really south of the sea along the Jordan uh, uh, down into Judea. And uh, John had had his own followers, uh, but John also had a run-in with the Roman authorities. For at one point, John the Baptist critiques Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the primary, uh, excuse me, he critiques Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was the primary ruler uh, in the Galilee region. And the reason he critiques Herod is that Herod had married the former wife of his brother Philip. And that woman is named Herodias. And John critiques Herod for this because presumably Herod essentially stole his brother's wife. Uh, so because of this, Herod imprisons John, uh, but interestingly, Herod, Herod is not necessarily against John. Herod is intrigued by John the Baptist. He actually enjoys listening to him and, and, and following his teaching. So Herod definitely has mixed feelings about John the Baptist, but all of this is to change when Her- Herod decides to throw a dinner party. And at that dinner party, where all of the special and prominent guests are arranged, uh, with Herod as the hos- uh, hospitable uh, host, uh, there the daughter of Herod and Herodias, the wife that he had stolen from his brother, that daughter named Salome, dances. Uh, now, interestingly enough here, Mark seems to call this daughter Herodias, but we know from other sources that her name is actually Salome. So whether or not Mark made an error, or maybe Salome was also known as Herodias, the name of her mother, we don't know. But but just take note that when Mark refers to Herodias as the daughter, uh, that daughter really is probably Salome. In either case, this daughter dances, perhaps a seductive dance of some sort. But in either case, it so pleases Herod that he says to the daughter, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. This is essentially an expression of, I'm willing to give you everything. Um, I'm sorry, I should say, ask for whatever you wish up to half of my kingdom, and I will give it to you. Essentially, what Herod is saying is, I will give you anything you ask, as long as I don't lose majority control of the kingdom itself. This actually echoes a similar request by a ruler to, to a young woman. Uh, going back to the Old Testament, in, the, in uh, the story of Esther, the king there, the Persian king Ahasuerus, uh, is so pleased with Esther that he also says to her, ask whatever you wish up to half my kingdom and I will give it to you. So the daughter uh, goes back to her mom, Herodias, and says, what should I ask for? And Herodias, you have to see, was holding a grudge. She was angry at John the Baptist because of the ways that he had critiqued Herod precisely for his marriage to her. And so he tells, she tells her daughter, ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Well, when Herod receives this request from the daughter, he is understandably grieved because he, ha- he did have some regard and interest in John the Baptist and didn't really want to kill him. But he also wants, doesn't want to, uh, he wants to save faith, uh, face, excuse me, and out of regard for his oaths before his guests, he did not want to refuse the daughter. In other words, he didn't want to go back on his word because it would make him look bad. So sure enough, Herod gives the command to have 
John the Baptist beheaded while in prison. At that time, then, the disciples of John the Baptist recover the body and bury him in a tomb. This is a remarkable story. It feels to me more suited for an HBO miniseries than for Holy Scripture. What with its description of seduction and political intrigue and scandal and murder and all these sorts of things. In fact, this story has garnered the attention of many artists and writers throughout the history. If you're following along in the Prezi slides, you'll see some paintings by Titian, uh, Caravaggio, Gustave Moreau. And we also should note that Oscar, Oscar Wilde wrote a play about... Salome, the daughter of Herod and Herodias. All of this, uh, then, is, is intriguing, but there's a few points of confusion. First, who is this Herod figure that's mentioned in this story? Well, this gets a little bit confusing for most readers of the New Testament, and I have to admit that it's, I always have to work hard to keep these names straight, but there are at least four different Herods that existed at about the time of Jesus, and oftentimes when the New Testament refer, refers to them, it does not, it's not, doesn't carefully parse which one is which. So, you'll see this uh, displayed to you on the presentation slides, but let me offer a brief explanation. The first Herod, the kind of the mate or the patriarch of the line, is Herod the Great. He was appointed to control all of Palestine by Emperor Caesar Augustus, and he reigns uh, until about 4 BCE. This is probably the Herod, by the way, that's mentioned in the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, uh, when Matthew references a census. Well, the Herod who orders it, according to Matthew, uh, is in fact Herod the Great. And this is instructive to know, Herod the Great uh, reigns until 4 BC. That's the time of Jesus' birth. So, ironically, we always must remember that Jesus was was born before Christ. That is, he was born literally before the year zero. He was still born in the time period that we call BCE, or before the Common Era. Now, when Herod dies, his kingdom is divided between three, uh, each of his three sons. And interestingly enough, and very confusingly, all of Herod's sons are also named Herod. It kind of reminds me about that uh, famous boxer, George Foreman, who also names all of his sons George Foreman. But in either case, that's what happens with Herod, and it results in some confusion about which Herod is which. So, Herod the Great's eldest son is named Herod Archelaus, and he receives the lion's share of control of the area that Herod the Great uh, was the ruler of. And so, basically, he's the ruler of Jerusalem, Judea, all of the area in the south. But the funny thing with Herod Archelaus is that apparently he was a terrible ruler, and Caesar Augustus um, basically removes him from office uh, by 6 AD. So he's not even in office uh, for 10 years. And then that region, that large region of Jerusalem, Judea, uh, is, is, not, is then taken over by a series of Roman governors. And from then on, they rule that territory. Uh, and they're based in Caesarea Maritima, which is along the Mediterranean coast, just north of Tel Aviv. In any case, one of those Roman governors you know quite well. Uh, It was Pontius Pilate. He was one of the Roman governors that was ruling Jerusalem and Judea in place of Herod Archelaus. 
The second son of Herod the Great is Herod Antipas, and that's the Herod of our story with John the Baptist. Now, Herod Antipas rules the region in the Galilee, uh, including uh, Nazareth, where Jesus' parents were from and where Jesus spent most of the early years of his ministry. And then finally, third, there's Herod Philip, who rules in the northern Transjordan region, so kind of beyond the current borders of Israel, up into Syria, uh, Lebanon, and even parts of Jordan. Uh, He is not mentioned much in Scripture at all, but his replacement is, that is, his successor is mentioned, and that successor is King Agrippa, who we encounter in the book of Acts. So that's a little bit about the family of Herod. We have Herod the Great, the patriarch who rules until 4 BCE at about the time Jesus is born. Then the kingdom is divided between his three sons, Herod Archelaus in the south, Herod Antipas in the central to northern region, and then Herod Philip to the far north and beyond the current borders of Israel. So that's a little background about who these figures are. But what's the point of this story? Why, why does Mark spend so long on recounting this story of John the Baptist, especially when he, gives, uh, when he moves so quickly through other stories? Well, I think one of the ways we might answer that question is to understand the points of resonance between the death of John the Baptist and the coming death of Jesus. Both die in similar ways, and one might understand this story here in Mark 6 as pointing forward to what would happen to Jesus. For Jesus, it is not a mother uh, calling for his head on the platter, but rather it's the crowds crying out, crucify him, crucify him. In both cases, uh, John and Jesus are condemned to death by a Roman ruler who was actually reluctant to see that person killed. Both Pontius Pilate and Herod Antipas really would rather spare this person, but in order to save face with the crowd, in order, uh, they essentially cave in to popular pressure and thus allow these great figures to be killed. Another commonality is that after Jesus' death and after John's death, the first thing that we hear is that their disciples come, take the body, and place it in a tomb. Of course, the story of Jesus does not end there as he rises from the dead on the third day. That doesn't happen with John the Baptist, but interestingly enough, in other parts of the Gospel of Mark, we'll find out that people confuse Jesus or or sometimes think that Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. So in either case, this I think Mark here is beginning to, by connecting the story of John the Baptist's death uh, to the future death of Jesus, Mark is essentially beginning to nudge the reader to begin to look towards Jerusalem and look toward the tragic ending of Jesus's life. Now, why tell this story here? Well, one possibility, we don't know for sure, of course, but one possibility is that this story is intentionally placed after the calling of the 12 apostles and the sending them out into the world. It's as if Mark is saying, I'm, Jesus is sending these disciples out, but, but take note, reader, this is no easy mission that Jesus is sending the disciples on. Just like John the Baptist, the disciples will run into persecution. They will run into resistance, especially when they come to challenge the Roman authorities. It's one thing to perform miracles in a Galilee. It'll be quite another thing when part of this message of the gospel is understood as subverting or challenging the political authorities of the day. And so I think what Mark is doing is warning his reader and saying, look, the cost of discipleship is high. Be prepared for the resistance that might come, for your path of discipleship might also one day lead 
to a similar fate as John the Baptist. And even if not as grisly or as physical, the, the task of following Jesus is one that's often paved with certain forms of persecution. So that's the story of the death of John the Baptist. Let's move on then to the two stories of the feeding of the multitude, the first of which in which Jesus feeds 5,000, that's in Mark 6, 30 to 44, and the second of which Jesus feeds 4,000, and that's in Mark 8, 1 through 9. We're going to mostly focus on the first story, uh, as it tends to be a little bit more familiar and it's a little bit of a longer story, but there are a lot of parallels between the two, and I'll highlight them uh, as we go along. Let's give the backstory here before we jump in. Uh, Jesus has just invited the disciples to come along with him to a deserted place and to rest. In order to do so, Jesus and his disciples get in a boat, and they're going to begin to cross the Sea of Galilee, probably not straight across, uh, but probably cutting it at an angle to to get away from the crowds and to find some nice deserted space. But as they do so, the crowds essentially see them get on the boat, they see where they're headed, and the crowds walk around the Sea of Galilee, they travel by foot along the coast, and they basically end up where the boat lands. And so even though Jesus and the disciples set out to be alone together in a deserted place, once they arrive, they are met by this enormous cloud, uh, crowd. It, it, it consists of at least 5,000 men, and if you count the women and children who no doubt would have been with them, it might have been upwards of 10,000 or 15,000. So the point of naming this backstory here is that the disciples and Jesus did not set out with a large crowd. It's not as if they got to some place with a large audience and all of a sudden realized they didn't have enough food to feed everyone. Rather, this was a surprise circumstance. They intended to do one thing, but the ministry activity of that day, this opportunity to be alone with Jesus, was interrupted by the needs of this crowd. Let's pick up with Mark 6.34. As Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. When it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and the hour is now very late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy something for themselves to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. They said to him, Are we to go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves have you? Go and see. When they found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then Jesus ordered them to get all the people to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And he ate and were filled, and all ate and were filled, and they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. I imagine that, that the large contours of the story are familiar to you, but let's take a closer look at some of the details. One of the things I want to highlight is that the very beginning point of this miracle story is Jesus's compassion. It all begins when Jesus looks out on the crowd, sees a need in the community, and has compassion. As I've mentioned in an earlier lesson, the, word, the Greek word for compassion, uh, splagnizomai, literally means bowels. And in the Greek thought, uh, the seat of emotions was actually not in the heart, as we often think of today in modern English, but rather the seat of emotions was in the guts, was in literally the bowels. And so for this text to say that Jesus had these people in his guts, we might almost imagine that saying that, that, that Jesus... Uh, 
had a gut instinct or a gut feeling uh, that led him to this compassionate response to the people. So here, Jesus' miracle begins not in a desire to display his amazing power, but rather in a desire to meet the needs of this particular community. The second thing that might have caught your attention is this description in the very same line in verse 34, that the people are like sheep without a shepherd. And I ask you here to pause for a moment and just to think about what comes to mind when you, when you hear this metaphor, like sheep without a shepherd, or it's really a simile, like sheep without a shepherd. What sort of imagery comes to mind if you were to paint a picture of this or imagine this in your mind's eye? What would you see? What would, you, what would it look like? And what is it meant to communicate about Jesus? I think for many of us, when we think about this imagery, sheep without a shepherd, we imagine this beautifully pastoral, rural imagery of a caring shepherd uh, who's taking care of his or her flock. We might even call to mind other stories in the New Testament where, uh, where Jesus tells a parable about the sheep owner leaving behind the 99 to go out and find the one lost sheep of the house of Israel. I think it confirms this tender nature of Jesus's ministry to his people, people that he's there to, to govern them and shepherd them along. We might even hear in these words a resonance with Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. This imagery is, is not only, there's a resonance here, not only because the reference to a sheep and a shepherd, but if you recall a little bit later in this story, Jesus orders the people to sit down in green grass or green gardens or fields. And that imagery might pick up on that, that second part of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green grass or by green pastures. There's that, again, there's this imagery that this story begins to pick up going back to Psalm 23. But there's also more going on here in this metaphor than, than is typically noticed. In the ancient world, one of the most common ways of describing a king, whether it's the king of Israel or the king of Mesopotamia or Egypt or Persia, one of the, co- one of the most common metaphors to describe a king was that of a shepherd. The king was known as a shepherd who kept watch over his flock. And of course, the flock is, uh, are the citizens of the country. And these kings in ancient Near Eastern art are often represented uh, slaying lions, literally driving arrows or knives into the back of lions. Now, why would a king be shown to, uh, slaying a lion? Well, precisely because uh, a lion would have been a chief predator of a sheep. And one of the roles of a shepherd then is to drive off those sorts of animals and to keep them at bay. And so when the king presents himself as a shepherd slaying a lion, he's really living into this metaphor, this imagery. And I think this is somewhat foreign to us because we don't associate a shepherd, the image of a shepherd with a king, but this would have been very commonplace in the ancient world. And I strongly suspect that the original readers of Mark's gospel would have automatically made this connection between a shepherd and a king. So I think when the original readers of Mark read this story, they're thinking of it not just as this nice pastoral imagery as Jesus as a shepherd, but they think that this anticipates the way that Jesus is a different sort of king. This is politically subversive in its original context. Essentially, Jesus is presenting himself in the imagery of kingship and in a way that would have challenged not only 
uh, Herod Antipas in this region, but also even Caesar Augustus himself. And so I think there's a political layer to this imagery as well. Let's move on then to how the disciples respond to the problem that they're facing. It says here in verse 36 that the disciples uh, tell Jesus to send the crowd away so that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy something for themselves to eat. It seems that the disciples think, it seems that the disciples recognize that there's a community problem here. They know that there's a community of people who are going without a basic need, but they seem to think that the solution to that problem lies outside of their present community. That is, to take care of this need for food requires that all of this crowd to disperse back into the country and villages and buy something for themselves to eat. Now, in this point, we might imagine the crowd uh, going going to markets or to cafeteria or something like that to buy food. I don't think that's likely what the disciples have in mind. This crowd would have been from the surrounding country and villages, and so in desiring to send them away, I think the disciples are simply saying, look, you've lectured long enough, Jesus. This is, we've been away a long time. Simply dismiss these people to return to their homes so that they can have something to eat. That would have been the most natural way to feed this crowd is just to let them go back to their homes and have something to eat. But Jesus is thinking about this community problem differently. He answers the disciples and says, you give them something to eat. And so the disciples kind of get it. And so their next thing they say is, um, are we then to go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? Think about what the disciples are saying here. Uh, I should note that a denarii, a denarius, is a decent amount of money. Scholars estimate that Basically, a day's worth of manual labor in the ancient world would have earned you one denarius. So to ask for 200 denarii worth of, uh, of money to buy this bread, the disciples are saying we basically need 200 days worth of, of manual payment, of la- uh, excuse me, a payment for manual labor to afford what it would take to feed this crowd. And let's be clear, the disciples didn't have that sort of money lying around. They couldn't just go into the discipleship um, treasury and pull out 200 denarii and then go buy bread for the crowd. Well, the disciples think is, look, if this is what we need to do, then we need to go out and fundraise. We need to go and have a capital campaign to raise the money necessary to feed this crowd. In this case, the disciples think the solution to this problem lies not only outside of the community, but the solution to this problem is best addressed through money, through raising money, and then turning that money into bread that can feed these people. We can certainly understand the impulse of the disciples here, and I want to be careful not to, over, to, to too quickly dismiss them for a wrong response, because in a certain way, I think the disciples are also responding to this community development problem out of compassion. They have a different vision of what that compassion will lead to, but I think like Jesus, they begin with a perspective and an impulse towards compassion. But I think Jesus has a different vision for how that compassion is to lead to a solution to this community problem. Jesus returns to them and says, how many loaves have you? Go and see. And so then then they had found out, they said, we have five and two fish. Then he ordered them to get all the people to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, and they took the five loaves and the two fish 
And uh, Jesus looked up to heaven, he blessed it, broke the loaves, and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. I think one of the things that Jesus is emphasizing here, and one of the things that Mark's gospel highlights, is that the solution to this community problem lies not outside of the community, but with the assets and resources that are already present in the community itself. That is to say, Jesus's solution to the problem begins with things that the community already has. It already has five loaves and two fish. They don't have to go and get those things. That's already part of the resources of the community. Jesus begins there and uses that as a, a, a means by which to address this community development problem. And I'm extrapolating a little bit, but this resonates with some current trends in the community development world. One of the most innovative approaches to community development nowadays is known as ABCD, Asset-Based Community Development. And essentially what ABCD ABC does is that instead of beginning with the problem of community development and defining it in terms of what does this community lack and what resources do we have from outside of the community to, to bring into the community to solve that problem. Rather, the first question that, it, that ABCD begins with is, what are the assets of a community? And how can we support and energize and empower, and empower people within the community to take advantage of those assets, to mobilize those assets into sustainable solutions for the needs of a given community. It's a very, very different perspective, and I think a very uh, theologically rich perspective in terms of how to cultivate solutions, sustainable solutions, to community development problems. And I think we see an image of that uh, being played out here in this wonderful story. Let me then highlight one last aspect of this story that might catch your attention. Back in verse 41, Jesus takes the five loaves and the two fish. He looks up to heaven. He blessed them, broke the loaves, and gave them to his disciples. Now, in many ways, this imagery of looking up to heaven, blessing, breaking, giving the food, it's really just the image of good Jewish hospitality. Any good dinner host in ancient Israel would have done very, very similar things. In fact, this notion of that this is about hospitality and hospitality around a meal is really underscored by the fact that this text describes the people as reclining uh, to receive this food. In the ancient world, people didn't sit at table to eat food. Rather, uh, they would recline on the ground, or better yet, they would recline in rooms called triclinniums. Triclinniums were rooms with literally three, that's our tri, uh, inclinations, clinium. Uh, people would then lay in various layers of this room uh, to take food. And so this, there's this imagery then of a meal, um, and even this word for groups that used in this text, when Jesus orders them to sit down in groups, the Greek word is uh, symposia, or from which we get the word symposium. And symposium really in the ancient world is just a dinner party, or maybe even a drinking party. So the imagery here is of a, of a gracious host doing what any gracious host would do, to invite people into, into a space to eat, and then blessing f- food and distributing it. So that much is very true, but, but for many of you who have been in the church before, particularly in services where the Lord's Supper is served, this language takes on another resonance. Because the very verbs that we find here, look up to heaven, blessed, break, give, also occur elsewhere in the Gospels around the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper. 
reading from Mark 14, 22 to 23. While they were eating, Jesus took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and all of them drank from it. Similar language is also found in the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of John. And what I want to suggest here is that this resonance of language between this miraculous feeding of the multitude and the Lord's Supper is not by accident. I think what Mark is doing, and the other gospel writers as well, is that they want to create a link between that last supper between the disciples and Jesus and this early miraculous feeding. Because I think when when that happens then, uh, we see that this miracle story is not just about feeding a bunch of people who are hungry, but rather this is a sacred meal, a meal of fellowship that's meant to bring people together around the grace and compassion of Jesus Christ in much the same the way that the Lord's Supper does. And conversely, it challenges us to think about the Lord's Supper, not just as this liturgical sacrament that we undergo from time to time in the church, but that we really begin to encounter it as a miracle in its own right, as a place and a means by which we see God entering the world incarnate and addressing true needs of a community in a miraculous way. And so I think in that sense, we read both texts differently when we see the connection between the two. I think what happens in both instances is that we realize that this meal is not just about a miracle, but it's about the theological concept of abundance. In God's kingdom and through our encounter with the living Christ, we encounter uh, an abundance of God's mercy and love, which is beautifully symbolized in how this story ends. In verse 43, the disciples take up what's left over, and it fills 12 baskets full of broken fishes and of the fish. And if you notice here, the leftovers of this miraculous meal is actually more in quantity than what the disciples had in the first place. There's an abundance of blessing and provision that we encounter in the ministry of Jesus. And that theologically is an important point for Christians to observe and learn from today. Okay, let's move on then to the third part of this lesson, which deals with Jesus's calming of the sea in Mark 6, 45 to 52. Let me begin by reading the story to refresh your memory. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowds. After saying farewell to them, he went up on the mountain to pray. When evening had come, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. When he saw that they were straining at the oars against an adverse wind, he came towards them early in the morning, walking on the sea. He intended to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they had saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. A couple things to keep in mind as we begin to engage this story. First, as I mentioned early on and at the outset of this lesson, this is the second time Mark tells a story about Jesus calming a, a storm on the Sea of Galilee. The other was back in Mark 4, 35 to 41. And while there are a lot of similarities 
between these two stories, there's a couple points of difference as well. And namely, the one main difference is that when the storm arises in Mark 4, Jesus is with the disciples. In fact, it's said that he's asleep in the back of the boat. But in this case, when the storm arises, Jesus is on the shore and the disciples are alone in the boat. And that's why then Jesus needs to walk out to them on the water to, uh, to, to, um, to calm the sea and the wind. The second thing to point out here is that Matthew tells this same story about Jesus calming uh, the wind. It's not in the Gospel of Luke, but Matthew tells it. And, Mar- and again, Jesus walks out on the waters to calm the wind and the waves. But, but Matthew adds an additional scene. When Jesus sees Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, he says, Lord, it is you. Command me to come to you on the water. Jesus says, come. And then Peter gets out, starts to walk on the water, But when he notices the strong wind, he becomes frightened, and he begins to sink. And then he cries out, Lord, save me. So there's that added scene in in Mark's version of the story. Peter never gets out of the boat and tries to walk on the water himself. That's a unique feature of the Gospel of Matthew. With all that said, we might simply ask, what is this story really about? Well, in most readings and in most interpretations, this story is about an epiphany of power. That is, it's an it's, it's a explanation of the way in which Jesus, as God, has power over nature, power even to control the wind and the waves. And I would want to firmly... Uh, Uh, I would want to fully affirm that sort of conclusion because certainly, as in the story of Jesus feeding the multitude, this is a story that displays Jesus' incredible power. But I think there's a few other things going on in this text. Namely, the one thing I want to point out is that the ability to control the sea, as Jesus demonstrates here in this text, is actually an important element of the characteristics of God in the Old Testament. Consider Psalm 74, 12 through 15, which is also on your presentation slide. Yet my king is from out old, working salvation in the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the dragons in the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him his food for the creatures of the wilderness. You cut openings for springs and torrents. You dried up ever-flowing streams." For many of us modern readers, as we encounter Psalm 74, 12 through 15, the imagery here seems very strange, and it it is strange, but it would have been less so for an ancient reader of Scripture, because what they would have heard in this text is uh, is a description of God, God as king, conquering the sea and conquering the water. The key to understanding this is, is understanding kind of the symbolism of the sea in the ancient world. The Hebrew word for sea, yam, is also the name of a Canaanite god of the sea. That is a non-Israelite god of the sea and of rivers. And in Canaanite literature, namely something known as the Baal cycle, um, there's a description of how some of the chief gods battle, namely Baal, battles against the sea, this personified uh, Yom deity, um, and defeats that deity. So, it's, it's common in ancient religion then to describe a god triumphing over the sea uh, in order to establish dominion and establish his rule throughout the earth. And many scholars believe that Psalm 74, 12 through 15 is picking up on similar imagery. But this time, it's not uh, Baal fighting against the deity Yom, but rather it's God the God of Israel, Yahweh, fighting against these primordial waters and sea in order to demonstrate 
his sovereignty. And this is not the only time that we encounter the God of Israel conquering and controlling the sea. There is, of course, the very beginning of the first creation account in the book of Genesis. There we find that creation is not out of nothing, but in that very beginning moment of creation, uh, there's something there, and that thing there is described as a, as a surface of the deep, as water. And the conditions of that water is described with my favorite Hebrew term, tohu vabohu, which often gets uh, translated as formless void. It essentially means that there was this chaotic void emptiness at the beginning of creation that was associated with the sea. And God's initial act of creation begins when he brings order to that tohu vabohu and takes mastery over the sea. We see a similar theological reflex in the story of the Exodus, where God delivers his people Israel out of slavery in Egypt by by dividing the waters of the Red Sea and allowing the Israelites to pass through and escape the tohu vabohu of slavery in Egypt. And then again, in a few books later, at the beginning of the book of Joshua, This time, God parts the waters of the Jordan to allow his people to pass through on dry ground to enter the land that had promised to them since the time of Abraham. So in all of these cases, what we're seeing is that not just a display of God's power over nature, but we're seeing at a symbolic level God's power over all forces of chaos and death. This would have been very clear to a a reader of Mark who was familiar with the Old Testament. We see also then Jesus being depicted in the image of the Holy One of Israel. Uh, Again, any reader of the Old Testament who encounters the Gospel of Mark knows when you begin to show Jesus as calming the wind and the waves, that that basically says that Jesus is fulfilling one of the chief roles of the God presented in the Old Testament. Now, the second thing I want to revisit is this motif of Jesus walking on water. Now, it's easy to think of this as something that is just simply impossible to do. And so, in Jesus walking on the water, we just encounter another miracle, another amazing thing that Jesus is capable of. But in the ancient world, this idea of walking on water had a particular connotation. And namely, in ancient literature, the ability to walk on water symbolically represented the arrogance of ancient kings. So, for instance, in, cre- in critiques of these kings, whether it's the Persian Xerxes or the Greek Alexander, opponents of the king would, also, would often poke fun of the king for claiming that they could walk on water. So they would say something like, well, so-and-so is so great that he claims to walk on water, but, but we know he's not that powerful. Uh, a great example of this uh, in the Hellenistic Jewish context comes with, um, a, in the form of a Jewish text that ridicules the arrogance of Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who was a ruler um, uh, in, in, in the centuries leading up to the time of Christ. He was a ruler that was particularly anti-Jewish uh, in his practices. And so we read of this in a Jewish text. It says, Then Antiochus departed rather quickly, carrying off 800 talents from the temple. This Antiochus had raided the the temple in Jerusalem. So he's carrying off 800 talents from the temple in addition to the thousand, supposing arrogantly, now here's the key line, supposing arrogantly that he could make the land navigable and the sea passable as if it were dry land 
on account of the vain imagining of his heart. So here in this text, Antiochus is dismissed, uh, and part of the dismissal is based on the sense that he was so arrogant that he could claim to walk on water or make um, or pass the sea as if it were dry land. So all of this here then is taken up, uh, is in the background when Mark describes Jesus walking on water. Once again, it's not just a miracle, although it is that, but it's also uh, really subtly an assertion that Jesus, unlike these other rulers who claim to have walked on water, it's only this ruler, this king, who truly accomplishes that task. The final thing to highlight here, and we'll bring this lesson to a close, are some echoes or resonances between this story and the book of Exodus. And I want to draw out four such echoes uh, of the book of Exodus in this story as a way of clarifying a couple parts of this miracle story that might be a bit confusing. First, in Mark 6.48, we hear that when Jesus initially walks onto the water, he intended to, be- to pass them by, is how the NRSV reads. And this might be confusing. Why is Jesus intending to pass these people by if, in fact, his point was to save them from the sea? Well, the English might imply that he's about to ignore them, but when we hear an echo with the book of Exodus, a different understanding comes into view. In Exodus 34, 5 and 6, we read this. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name, the Lord. And then the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, and then uh, the passage continues. But this story in Exodus, almost the same exact phrase is used. The Lord is about to pass before someone. And this is not what makes, what's very clear in the book of Exodus in 34, 5, and 6, is that when the Lord passes before Moses, it's not for the purpose of ignoring him, but rather this is the language of revelation. The Lord is passing before Moses in order to reveal something to him, not to ignore him. And I think that same connotation is active in Mark 6, 48. When when it says that Jesus intended to pass them by, it was not so that he would ignore them, but because he was about to do something that would reveal his true nature to the people. And this, in fact, is exactly what happens in Exodus 34. 5 and 6. So that's our first echo. Our second echo echo comes in Mark 6.50. There we read, but immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. This command uh, to to take heart literally means um, have compassion. And we encounter similar language in Exodus 20.18 and 20 at another point of divine revelation. It reads, when all the people witnessed the thunder and the lightning, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, they were afraid and trembled and stood at a distance. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. It's the same word that Jesus speaks to the people. The point here is that when we encounter divine theophany or this appearance of the divine Lord, uh, it's a natural response to be afraid. This is not something we should blame the disciples for. It is a natural to, to be fearful, to be, to be in awe in the presence of this divine revelation. And in both cases, once with Jesus and once with Moses, the encouragement is to not be afraid. The third point of connection between this story and Exodus is found when Jesus says, uh, later in this text, take heart, it is I. Now, on any initial reading in the English, this seems like a very normal thing to say. He's encouraging them and just says, look, it's me. It's me, Jesus. But in Greek, 
Uh, this language, it is I, which is ego Amy, has a particular connotation that connects back to an important scene in the book of Exodus. When Moses encounters God at the burning bush and inquires about who this divinity is, God says to Moses, I am who I am. And in the Greek translation of that Hebrew phrase, uh, it's simply ego Amy, the same exact thing that Jesus says to his to his disciples. And here again, I think the connection is really quite intentional. Uh, This is in the book of Exodus 3.14. It's a moment of divine revelation where God reveals to Moses that he is the great I am. And Jesus, by saying, take heart, it is I, he is making the same declaration to his disciples many, many years later. The final connection between this story and that of Exodus occurs in Mark 6.52. It says, for they did not understand about the loaves, but the disciples' hearts were hardened. And this imagery of a hardened heart definitely connects back to a common refrain in the book of Exodus. We encounter it in Exodus 7.13, where Pharaoh's heart was said to be hardened because he would not listen to Moses and Aaron as the Lord had said. The hardening of the heart is a metaphor here. It could mean a couple possible things, but for our purpose, it simply means a certain obstinacy, a certain um, callousness to faith and the reception of God's mercy and God's work in the world. And I think this is really an important motif in the Gospel of Mark because continually the disciples in the Gospel of Mark are not shining examples of faith, but rather they often fail, and that makes them problematic and complicated figures, but it might in fact make them figures that we can more empathize with, because few of us have faith that never fails. We often are familiar with the phenomenon of a hardened heart. We've experienced that, and to know that 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 too was true of the disciples is actually something that I think is encouraging, because even though the disciples struggled, even though they had a hardened heart at times, they still were considered people of faith. They still were considered disciples. They weren't disqualified from discipleship because they occasionally doubted or had hardened hearts. And that's an important message for us today. God does not call us to a perfect faith. God calls us to a persistent faith. And even though the disciples don't always get it, they persist in traveling and being with this Jesus, who claimed to be the Holy One of Israel, the Son of God. Finally, let me turn to the fourth and last part of this lesson, which addresses the story of Jesus' encounter with the Syrophoenician woman. And here my comments will be necessarily a little bit shorter for the sake of time. After all of this happens, Jesus sets out and goes away to the region of Tyre. And if you remember from our Uh, looking at maps earlier in this series, the region of Tyre lies north above the border of Israel and into the land of modern-day Lebanon. Uh, And Jesus goes there in order to escape from his enemies, but more likely um, he goes there to minister to the large Jewish population that was in fact located north of the Galilean border. In either, either case, while there, Jesus encounters a woman who is described as being of Syrophoenician origin. In the parallel story in Matthew, she is called a Canaanite. Neither are exactly precise ethnic or national labels, but the point is this woman is a non-Israelite. She was a non-Jew. And probably, whether Syrophoenician or Canaanite, those titles were meant to have some sort of negative connotations because they remember back to the Old Testament times when the Israelites were, uh, when the chief enemy of the Israelites were often called Canaanites. 
This is one of the only handful of times in the Gospels we see Jesus interacting directly with a Gentile, and it's the only time where he dresses directly a Gentile woman. Now, as the story goes on, the woman begs Jesus to cast out a demon who had possessed her daughter. Once again, we don't know exactly what such demon possession would have involved. It was quite possible that the daughter might simply have been suffering some, from some physical ailment, and then it was understood as demon possession. We don't know the specifics, but in either case, we have reason to think that the daughter had suffered for quite some time, and this Syrophoenician woman comes to Jesus. She bows down before him in a posture of worship or submission, and uh, she begged him to cast out the demon of her daughter. Now, Jesus' response is not exactly what we would expect. He says to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. Well, in order to understand what Jesus is saying, we need to, need to decode some of this language. The children here likely refer to the children of God, that is, the Israelites. He's saying, Let the Jewish people, let God's chosen people from the Old Testament, be fed first. And then this imagery of dogs uh, that she uses um, in the Old Testament to call someone a dog was to imply that they were despicable and perhaps even unclean. It's a metaphor that might well imply that the Gentile or non-Jewish woman was, was somehow subhuman or at least not deserving of Jesus's care. It's a very surprising and somewhat disturbing response. What exactly is Jesus saying? Is he saying that there's a superiority of Israel's claim upon God's mercy and blessing? This is odd, especially in light of the fact that we know Jesus has already healed a Gentile man early on in Mark 5. As hard as it is to encounter this scene in the Gospel of Mark, it's even more difficult in the Gospel of Matthew. For there, the story begins in a slightly different way reading from Matthew 15, to 23. Just then a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. But he did not answer her at all. So in Matthew's version, Jesus, doesn't even, Jesus just ignores her initially. And his disciples come in Matthew's version, and they urged him saying, Send her away, for she keeps shouting after us. So Jesus is silent and ignores her. The disciples want to send her away, and only then does the woman persist um, and, and beseeches then Jesus uh, to come and, and save her daughter once again. And then Jesus says uh, in response, I've only been sent to the lost tribe of Israel. So all that's evident already in this story in Mark is even amplified in the Gospel of Matthew, where, where Jesus seemingly ignores this woman, even though she approaches him in a very pious way. Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. So, what do we make of this? Well, as the story concludes in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus does eventually relent and has a good word for her. He says, um, or, or excuse me, the woman first says, Sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. So here, the woman kind of plays with this metaphor that Jesus has began about children and dogs. And she says, yes, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Give me some of those crumbs that my daughter might be healed. And in the end, Jesus relents. He says to her, for saying that you may go, the demon has left your daughter. Now, what's curious about this last statement from Jesus is what, is he, what does he exactly mean when he says that? 
What does that refer to? Well, does it refer to her persistence, the fact that she continued to beseech him uh, for this uh, healing of her daughter? Does the that refer to the way she addresses him? In that earlier verse, the woman says to Jesus, Sir, it's a little bit of a misleading translation in the NRSV because the word beneath that in Greek is Kyrie. And Kyrie can be translated as Sir, but Kyrie can also be translated as Lord. So in addressing Jesus as Kyrie, does the woman implicitly acknowledge her faith and, and understanding of the true identity of this Jesus of Nazareth? Is that what Jesus is responding to? We don't know, uh, but these are some possibilities. To, con- to conclude, what do we make of this? What do we make of what seems to be Jesus' reluctance to heal this woman upon her first request? Well, one, I want to offer two possibilities. The first is that this story in the Gospel of Mark functions as an exhortation to persistence. Out of the Synoptic Gospels, Luke does not include the story of the Canaanite woman. And one wonders, uh, but what he does include is a story about a persistent widow, a widow who goes to a judge asking for help, and that judge continues to deny her, but she's persistent in her requests until finally the judge gives in Uh, because essentially the woman is pestering uh, him or her, depending who the judge is, uh, for a particular request. Well, I want to suggest that maybe that that story of the persistent widow does not appear in the Gospel of Mark. And I want to suggest that perhaps this encounter between Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman functions in the same way. That is, this can be read as a story about the importance of persistence in one's chasing after God and one's prayer life. Jesus, like the judge, after initially refusing the woman uh, and seemingly having little regard for her, much like the judge in Luke had little regard for the people. But in the end, like the judge, Jesus in our story is won over by the woman's persistence. He does grant her justice by healing her daughter and commending her faith. The Canaanite woman in this reading becomes a model for our own persistence in seeking mercy. Another possibility, though, and one that I find a little bit more persuasive, is that this story, this New Testament story, embodies a vision, an Old Testament vision of the inclusion of the Gentile along with the Jew. We often think of God's mercy and blessing being especially appointed for Israel in the Old Testament, and it is, but in many ways, in the latest parts of the Old Testament, in the the literature of the the latter chapters of the book of Isaiah, uh, we already begin to see a vision of God's mercy and and blessing and election extending not only to Israel, but extending out to the Gentile nation. Consider Isaiah 56, 6 and 7. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath and do not profane it, and hold fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, and make them joyful in the house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. In this magnificent vision at the end of the book of Isaiah, All people are included in God's kingdom. All people are welcomed into the temple, not by basis of their ethnicity or nation of origins, but rather by their commitment 
to God. And I think in many ways, what this New Testament story is showing is it's an embodiment of this vision. This Canaanite woman is a foreigner who becomes joined to the Lord as a fellow recipient of God's mercy and justice. In addressing Jesus as Lord, this Gentile woman becomes the vanguard of Gentile believers. Thus, in her, we see not only the fulfillment of prophecies from long ago, but also the inauguration of the church's mission to the Gentiles. Her story, in many ways, anticipates Paul's theological claim in Galatians 3.28, when he says, In Christ's kingdom, there is no longer Jew or Greek, there is no longer slave or free, there is no longer male or female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus through faith. This might well be the beginnings of that transformational theological statement that the Apostle Paul later gives us. This brings us then to the close of this lesson. I hope that has helped clarify the nature of these materials that we encounter in Mark 6:30 through 8:10. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.